This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. And let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this special edition of Cut to the Chase. We are talking about 9-11 today. And one of the best people I can think of to talk about this is Joe Calderoni, who's just written a novel about 9-11 and its aftermath. The book is called Don't Look Back. And it's gotten great reviews. People magazine called it the best paperback of the year. Nick Pelegi, who wrote Wise Guys and the screenplay Goodfellas, called it a brilliantly suspenseful novel. Mark Bowden, author of Black Hawk Down, calls it a crisply written page turner and a story of tragedy, tenacity, and the continued importance of a free press. So Joe Calderoni and I know each other for a very long time. We can get into that in a bit. He worked as a newspaper reporter and editor for more than two decades, investigations editor at the Daily News. He covered New York City's City Hall for New York Newsday back when there was a New York Newsday, which was my favorite paper at the time, by the way. While at Newsday, he was a member of a team of reporters that won a Pulitzer Prize. So he's definitely got the chops. He teaches journalism. He is a master of corporate communications. This is his first novel. So that was a big introduction. I just want to say, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. And it's really nice to talk to you. Hey, Laura, thank you very much for having me. And if, if I'm allowed to, I just want to say what a great job you did as county executive in Nassau County, especially during the pandemic, when there was a lot of misinformation floating around. You did an excellent job of really keeping people informed about what was the most important health information they needed to survive. And that was no small feat. So I just wanted to congratulate you on that. Joe, that's so kind. I really appreciate it. And we actually had the chance to work together quite a bit since you are in charge of corporate communications at Mount Sinai South Nassau, which is one of our major hospitals in Nassau. So thank you very much for the kind words. So before we get into the novel, Don't Look Back, I'd like to know where you were on 9-11 and what your day was like. Yeah, so actually, and as a political figure, you'll appreciate this, it was primary day in New York City, as, right. as some people may recall. So as a reporter, most of us who covered politics, we went in late that day by design because we knew we'd be at the hotels, either the winners or the losers, you know, up until 10, 11, 12 o'clock, depending on how late the results would. So I was actually home and my wife said, hey, I think you better get in. She was watching TV. So I did try to get in, but by the time I got on the Long Island Railroad, I got as far as Jamaica. From Floral they, Park, right, in Nassau? Yes, from yeah. Floral Park, right. Thank you. And they backed everybody up. I was able to finally get in later that night. The E-train was running from Long Island City. Hmm. So I was able to get into the newsroom. And then the next day, 
I was down there the entire day and it was just, you know, you had to walk from, it was an armed camp as everyone who lived through it remembers, you know, there were heavily armed National Guard on, on every street corner and you had to walk from 14th Street. There was nothing running downtown. So, but I stationed myself just outside the pile by the World Financial Center. Mm. The, the top of the center had been pierced like some, you know, bad science fiction movie. And it, it was just unworldly. But we were all, you know, every reporter in town was working their sources and talking to people and just observing and gathering. It was initially, of course, it was a it was a search and rescue operation. Unfortunately, you know, all the hospitals in town were on high alert. Right, I remember. For patients that never came. Yeah. They never came. You know, there were very few people who were actually rescued. So your book starts with firefighters heading over to the towers after they're both hit. Proby, probation, you know, very new firefighter, Peter Murphy and his more experienced team are heading over. And the way you write about when they're inside and the way you describe very subtle things, there's really not a lot of melodrama or histrionics in this book. The way you describe the sounds, it's just so matter of fact. And the changes, the physical changes when they're inside, they're helping this man who's in a wheelchair get down the stairs. It makes it feel incredibly real in a way that any kind of platitudes or histrionics or melodrama just wouldn't. What made you decide to just go for that spare way of talking about it? So I think, you know, as a news reporter, they kind of pound into you, less is more. Mm. And that's just kind of the writing style, especially as a tabloid reporter. And I wanted to get, you know, the reason I went fiction rather than nonfiction, there have been many, many excellent books, nonfiction books written about, you know, what was one of the most covered events in New York City history and in world history. But I wanted to get inside their heads. I wanted to get inside the heads of not only the firefighters as that opening scene where they're heading over the Brooklyn Bridge and they're seeing in the distance, you know, they know what they're about to face. Yeah. Uh, but I also wanted to get into the heads and describe the struggles of the families. Most of the book is actually post 9-11 as the families, the FDNY families organize and try to get answers out of City Hall. I had covered, uh, done some stories for the Daily News about the fire department. Wasn't my regular beat, but as an investigative reporter, I had done some stories about the fire department. So I had some sources there. And I remember on the night of 9-11, you know, hearing that more than 300 firefighters, still an estimate at that point, but they knew that they had lost an unbelievable number of firefighters all the way from Proby all the way up to the top chiefs, they had lost people. And I was just, you know, stunned by that. I still am. And that's why I decided to do this book. It took me 10 years to do and mm. 20, 20 rejections from agents. 20. Uh, okay. So if there are any aspiring people, writers out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be persistent, Keep but pushing. it only takes one. I learned it only takes one. And finally, my friend, uh, you know, Tom Robbins, who I worked with at the Daily News, I should have started with him. But I finally said, hey, Tom, you know anybody? So he gave me his agent, Ed Breslin, and, and Ed uh, was kind enough to actually read it. You know, he embraced it and took him a while, but he found a, a publisher. So it was, it's been a long road, but I just felt that the story of what happened to the firefighters had not been fully told. Yeah. Uh, and that was the premise. And really, 
what I did, it is historical fiction, but what I did was take Chapter 9 of the 9-11 Commission report. The 9-11 Commission, I think, did a very good job, a bipartisan commission, unlike some of the stuff that we have today in government and politics. But they did a very good job of looking at the international and the national implications, but also the city's response. And it was in Chapter 9 that they detailed the communication problems, the problems with the handy-talky radios Mm -hmm. that the firefighters depend on. But very few people have read Chapter 9 of the 9-11 Commission Report, right? Mm -hmm. So the concept was to take the elements of that chapter and put it into a fictionalized uh, storyline that I hope people will embrace and make it a little bit more accessible for people to understand the sacrifices and some of the serious issues that the firefighters faced that day and that their families faced in the aftermath. And we go into City Hall, what was you know uh, happening in City Hall, and in the newsrooms across the city as well. Right. And that was so fun to read. So it follows the story of Juan, Juan Gomez, who is a, an investigative reporter, sort of the star reporter at the News of New York, another newspaper that you have made up. There's also in the story, the Daily fictional, News of New York. Fictional new tabloid, right? Exactly. Fictional tabloid. And he follows this story about potential, I don't want to give too much away, but potential bid rigging on radios that could have contributed to the problem. He becomes friendly with a woman who works in City Hall. She's close to the mayor, Giuliani, and it goes on from there. Now, one thing that is could be potentially controversial is the tension between, yes, the 343 firefighters died, who died there, are heroes. But is it that they died because of the faulty radios? You know, what was it? And how did you feel about navigating that tension? Like, are you lessening yes. their heroism? How did you tightrope that? Yes. So it's a good, very good question. And it is a key point and theme in the book. And, you know, right after 9-11, there was no appetite or not much of an appetite immediately after 9-11 to kind of examine that question. You know, they were still recovering remains and funerals went on for months, as you recall. But now it's 21st anniversary of 9-11 this year. And I think it allows us through a historical fiction lens to take a closer look at some of the problems and challenges that they faced. And again, this is really nothing that was not documented by the 9-11 Commission in terms of the communications, in terms of the the problems that the firefighters had communicating that day. But it it is a little tricky. It takes nothing. The book is dedicated to the 343 firefighters who perished. So certainly no intent to take anything away. There were a lot of heroes that day who ran into the buildings not knowing what they would be facing. They certainly helped a lot of people get out of the buildings. But there is also a legitimate question, again, which the 9-11 Commission raised itself, about whether or not they had the tools they needed to get out when the May Day was called. I mean, there were firefighters in the North Tower, it's pretty clear, that didn't even know that the South Tower had gone down. And there were roughly 29 minutes between the time the South Tower went down and the North Tower went down. So that did afford some opportunity for those folks to get out, you know, and even in the South Tower, did everyone hear the May Day uh, call? 
uh, Commissioner Von Essen, who was the fire commissioner at the time, in his own book, and his own memoir that he published, he also acknowledged that he perhaps put it best. He said, sometimes the radios worked and sometimes they didn't. That's so right. It, yeah. And you end with his uh, several paragraphs from that. He testified before the 9-11 Commission, and I thought it was very good testimony, and I thought it would help wrap up and address the, the very question that you're raising. He says there were problems with communications. Nothing worked all the time. Everything worked some of the time. And he goes on to right. say, we do know that evacuation orders were given both before and after the South Tower collapsed. What we will never fully know is how many received the evacuation orders and how many did not. And that right. just it's like a puts a chill right through you because yeah. we'll never yeah. know. Yeah. And then, the you know, the title of the book, Don't Look Back, really came from City Hall kind of put out a message to all of the PR people at all of the agencies that, mm. you know, don't blame us. This was not our doing. This was the terrorists, all of which, of course, is true. <laughs> but the city's response, how the city responded to such an which what was what an unprecedented situation, no question. But it is the job of journalists to examine what happens in the aftermath of something like this. And I think it's certainly a legitimate area of inquiry to go down that road without trying to take anything away from any of the heroics. And actually, the families themselves, mm-hmm. it was the 9-11 families themselves that kept pushing for answers and wanted an official investigation. This was before the 9-11 Commission was even formed. You know, it wasn't even clear that was going to happen. But there was enough pressure eventually from the families and from Congress that the 9-11 Commission was formed to look at all aspects of the response. You have two women, very strong women in the book, a mother of the probie who died and a widow. And they're pushing, pushing really hard, putting everything on the line for this, whether it's their marriage or their job. And one thing that's so important that this book shows is the importance of a free press and lessons learned so that terrible things don't happen in the future. And if there was a sweetheart deal, that should be known so it doesn't happen again, so lives can be saved. Mayor Giuliani figures in this book. He's a small, he's a, obviously he looms large, but you don't see him that much. It's really the people who are around him who are trying to manipulate the coverage, manipulate the newspaper. You covered Giuliani, right, when he was the mayor. I'm curious to know how that was because I remember working for the Daily News back in those days, and there was just such a tight control of information. Uh, Yes, well, as you know, he was a formal federal prosecutor. He brought a lot of those folks with him. I did cover, I covered Giuliani both when he ran in 1989 against Dinkins, and then, you know, I'm sorry, when he ran against, well, Koch, first Koch. And yeah. then Dinkins, then when he defeated Dinkins in 93. So I was actually pretty close to a number of folks in the administration. I actually thought he was a good mayor. Not all my colleagues in the press corps would agree with that. But I thought he was the right mayor for the time, at that moment in time, in the history of the city. And, you know, after 9-11, he was lauded as America's uh, mayor on the cover of Time magazine. And, you know, I think a lot of what he did in terms of just his public persona, and you know this yourself from a, as an elected official in the middle of a crisis, you went through it with COVID, you are the focal point, you are the, the leader, the voice, and people turn to you and look for information and comfort. And I think he did all of that. And I think he did it very well right after 9-11. But that being said, 
there were questions, legitimate questions about the response. And I try to, you know, put a spotlight on some of that. Again, in a fictional setting, the characters, I got to say, the characters in the book are fictional and not meant to reflect any people who are actually working in City Hall at the time. You know, when you're a reporter, I was a reporter for 25 years, you meet one of the great things about being a reporter is you meet all these great characters. And the, the challenge of, of the book, and one of the reasons I wanted to do it is I tried to wrestle all of those characters down into a readable format. So the characters that you meet in the book are a conglomerate of all kinds of good characters, bad characters, rogues, and otherwise. Yeah, from, I recognized a lot of them or pieces of a lot yeah. of them. And a lot of the names are composites of, you know, it, yeah. that was really fun to read having having been there for it. You know, just, right. just to one more thing about Rudy. So, you know, people can say whatever they want to say about Rudy after he was mayor and with Trump and all of this. But there was one thing that will always stick in my head. He said, I think it was the day after 9-11. I think it was 9-12. And a reporter said, you know, what are the casualties? How many? And he said, you know, all I know is it will be too much for us to bear. And that was yeah. just, he spoke right to people's hearts that True. I think really people needed to know that their mayor felt that way. And we yeah. can debate Rudy in, in a million different ways, but that was a moment. Something that was really fun in your book was being in the newsroom again. And it just reminded me back when I was there and you have these characters, you know, that we dealt with a lot in tabloid journalism in the 90s and into the 2000s. And that's the British tabloid editor editor being brought in by the publisher versus the grizzled New Yorker who's been in the business for decades. And of course, I'm thinking of people like Pete Hamill versus Martin Dunn. And that must have been fun for you to go back and play with a little bit. And then one of them punch, I'm not going to give it away, but there's a fight that happens and one of them does something to the other, a punch in the nose. <laughs> must have been kind of satisfying because editors, as we know, can be, you know, a little bit annoying. There's a lot of, there's a, you know this from working in, in a news, there's a lot of push and pull. And the average reader has no idea what it takes to get the paper out every day. It, it is a daily miracle. I'm fascinated by the fact that the New York Times and the Daily News and Newsday have been publishing now remotely because of COVID without yeah. a newsroom. But one of the great things about being a journalist is the newsroom and the atmosphere in the newsroom. And, and all there is tremendous push and pull, hopefully legitimate, over what story is more important than another and yeah. what angle are you going to pursue and can you get it before your competition and nail it down? So I tried to bring all of that to life, again, in a fictional setting to bring the reader into the newsrooms at the time of 9-11. And, you know, right after 9-11, it was tremendously competitive, right? I mean, it was this was a huge, huge story yeah. for all of the journalists working at that point in time. And and it was competitive. I mean, there's no question. And, and there were certain editors who had, you know, maybe very close ties to City Hall and, and other editors and reporters who just wanted to follow the facts wherever they went. So I tried to bring some of that to life. You know, it made me a little bit sad, especially about the Daily News, since there is no newsrooms. That was, you know, it was the first my first big newspaper job was the Daily News. I was 26 striding into that newsroom and just what you pick up through osmosis, just through listening, just through you learn from the folks like Tom Robbins and Juan Gonzalez and all these guys. 
And these young reporters don't have that. And I feel like they're really missing out. And I feel like the craft, the trade is really missing out with the way journalism yeah. is now. I mean, the New York City tabloids, when we were, they're just not the same anymore, especially the Daily News. Yeah, I think that's actually true of a lot of industries. I see the leaders of Wall Street and the big banks have been trying to get their people post-COVID to come into the office. And I think they're getting a lot of resistance, like from younger workers who, you know, they like the freedom of working from home, all of which I get, I understand. But as you said, there's no substitute for, especially as a younger person, no matter what industry you're in, for being there, being present, and just absorbing. I mean, at one point at New York Newsday, where I worked before the Daily News, we had Pete Hamill, Murray Kempton, Jimmy Breslin, Jim Dwyer, yeah. Dennis Gunn, all in one newsroom. I mean, you couldn't go two feet without picking up some tidbit, some bit of knowledge from these legends, you know? And I think yeah. whether it's a newsroom or a bank or any industry, you, you really miss that. So I would urge people to get, get back to work. Being there. All right. So I remember when, yeah, you were at New York Newsday. And then what year was it? Was it 1995 that New York Newsday closed for yep, good? Yeah, it was 95. Yep. It was very it was sad. Field, and field day. But it was good for the Daily News in that we got a whole tribe of reporters. And I remember you guys all coming over and you all seemed so serious. It was you and Willie Rashbaum and Russ Butner, Kevin Flynn, Jim Dwyer. Yes. Yes. I think Molly yes. Gordon was in the mix. Was she there? Molly Gordon? Molly Gordy? Yes. Yeah. And I just, you know, because <laughs> you guys all came in. You felt like you were all very serious, bearded, investigative reporters. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, we got to up our game. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Jim Dwyer was very kind. I think he, he talked, the legend is, he talked to Mort Zuckerman, who was the publisher. He said, oh, if we don't grab them, you know, the Post is going to grab them. And he built a lifeboat. Yeah. And he brought, a, he brought a lot of people over. And I was fortunate enough to be in that crew. And, you know, Art Brown was the managing editor at the time. Yes. And, and he was himself came out of City Hall, bureau chief and had written a book and was an investigative reporter and editor. So we had a lot of support at that point for, you know, continuing that tradition of watchdog journalism, which I think is very important. So I don't want to give too much away, but you do 9-11 and then the immediate aftermath, and then you fast forward a few years. And there is a passing reference to people getting sick, people who had been working on the pile for months, getting strange cancers and sicknesses. And that leads me to ask, are you looking at doing a sequel to this book? Well, I certainly would love to. I got some ideas for a second book. I think, you know, the main character. So one of the inspirations, my inspiration, I like Michael Connolly, the author uh, oh, yeah. of The Lincoln Lawyer and the Box series, yeah. and The Detective. He's great. So you know, my thinking is that my main character, the reporter Juan Gomez, could move around the city as Connolly's detectives move around Los Angeles. He's based in Los Angeles. I love that. Uh, yeah, this reporter could appear again, for sure. <laughs> I hope. And the great thing about a reporter is they're always embroiled in one story or another that you can just unpack. Also, exactly. I'm not telling you what to do, but there's a potential love story between a couple of characters that I think could be developed. <laughs> Just throwing that in there. <laughs> you're, you're not the first person to note that. Yeah. And, you know, that certainly could, could develop as well. As you said, there are two very strong female characters. One uh, works for Giuliani City Hall 
and she turns eventually into a whistleblower, mm-hmm. uh, Mary Sullivan. And then the other, you know, strong female character is a community organizer, as the mother of the Proby, Sarah Murphy. Uh, again, fictional, but they certainly help bring the story out to the fore. Well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for getting on the phone with us. So I just want to note, we work together at the Daily News. Fast forward, I reported to you in the Nassau County Press Office for a couple of years. And now I'm on the board of Mount Sinai South Nassau, where you are a vice president. So now we're on the podcast. So I think we've got a great future here. So let's keep it going. (laughs) Keep writing. Don't give up. I'm looking forward to see what Juan does next. You were the best hire I ever made. Oh, thanks. That was nice. (laughs) <laughs> all right. Well, all the best to you and keep writing. Right. And it is, it is available on Amazon, by the way. And it's also available as a recorded book. It's on I'll Audible. The guy who reads it's pretty good. He's terrific. Yeah. He, he actually, he has read Michael Connolly's book. So I ah. say he's good enough for Michael Connolly. He's good enough for me. Yeah, no, yeah. he's good. I, that's how I listen to it on Audible. There you go. All right, my friend. Talk to you all soon. Right. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.